0: Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, we gather to glorify the Lord by lifting up Jesus Christ, whom he has sent. That's what we do. That's what the church does. That's what we're after. So, think about for a moment the mission of Jesus, the Messiah. The mission of Jesus Christ. It's a multifaceted mission. There are a lot of things built into what Jesus is doing. But if you had to put a fine point on it, you had to tell someone, you know, the elevator deal. You had 30 seconds in the elevator with somebody, uh, not three hours next to them in the plane, which is usually how it goes. But you got 30 seconds in the, in the elevator, and you had to summarize. You had to put a fine point on the mission of Jesus. What did Jesus come to do? Could you do it? Could you tell the story of Jesus with main points being the main points in a, in a short period of, short period of time? How would you put a fine point on that? Well, I think as we just heard the word read from John chapter 17, Christ's Prayer, we, uh, I hope along with me you're feeling like we're well, waiting in the territory that's beyond our pay grade, you know, and maybe we are all the time in everything uh, as far as it goes, but I think sometimes we land in texts of scripture and it's like, oh, uh, we're dealing with something particularly special and, and particularly revelatory. There's God revealing stuff in this that's, More than we would expect, and deeper waters than we might want to go into. Jesus Himself is, and this is what I would maybe say if I had the thirty seconds or five, and uh, you know, know, five seconds and then twenty-five to elaborate maybe, as far as it goes. Jesus is the manifestation of divine glory, and He is the living means by which the chosen of God are drawn into that eternal glory. Jesus Christ is the manifestation of God's glory. Now we can look around and say, well, the glory of God's manifests all sorts of places. True, you're right. That's, uh, no question. In nature and the circuit of the heavenly bodies, we we can do that. We can we can look to our again our, our own bodies and how we're fearfully and wonderfully made. That these things hang together. Does that ever trip you out? It trips me out all the time. It's like there's a thousand and fifteen things that go wrong every second with our bodies and not even thinking about our minds and the complexity of mind, but God makes us and keeps us and holds us together in generations and in this long stream of history and all that's enough to blow your mind. That's enough, but really the glory of God isn't just manifested in history or manifested in creation, but is manifested in that man that walked on this earth for 33 years and then left us. He is the manifestation of the glory of God in the flesh and the the way by which through whom we enter into and share in the salvation God has, even His own glory. You'll want to have your finger, of course, in Romans chapter 11 as well. But look at the last verse of Romans 11. I turned right to it. The last verse of, of Romans 11 is... I think again the, the the very capstone of a phrase of uh, these full full some eleven chapters of of Paul's teaching. I want you to think back for just a moment about the various things that Paul has taught us that he's brought to the Roman Christians who again he'd never visited. He wanted to go there, he wanted to have fruit among them, just like he's had fruit among other Gentiles, and he wanted to go from Rome and keep ahead. you know Paul had his plans, but he hadn't been to Rome, but he wanted to write them of the shared Death of Jews and Gentiles. Okay? All of us, not just God's chosen people. That's an important thing, because there's always this Jew-Gentile thing going on in Paul and in the early church. But it's there. It said the Jews are lost. The Gentiles are lost. We're all lost. There's none good. No one stands before God. Everyone sought out their own devices. And then the salvation of God then to all. And as we get here at the end of chapter 11, God, can, God puts all under sin and condemnation that he may have mercy on all. Because the whole thrust of these first chapters is it's all about the mercy of God. It's all about God's gracious work in sinners who can't do something by themselves, who can't approach unto God, but whom God has approached through the incarnation. And that's what I'm saying, the, the very manifestation of the glory of God. But it's a hidden manifestation, isn't it? I say, say Christ manifests the glory of God, but those who are around him, some people saw that. Remember, Peter says, well, people say you're a prophet and everything else, but we know you're the son of the living God. And remember, Jesus says to him, well, you're blessed, Peter, because your Heavenly Father has revealed that to you. Flesh and blood didn't tell you that. Your Heavenly Father did. It's God's grace. God makes us awake. God shows us our wickedness. God shows us the glory of Christ. Uh, God shows us how we're baptized into him. That we're to reckon ourselves as dead to sin because we died with Christ. Right? And and to to live in righteousness because we've been raised with him. That's what our baptism is. It's not just a little washing with water that makes us think or, you know, we got a picture of or something like that. It does make us think and we do have pictures of it sometimes. Uh, But the point is that by the very washing with water in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit, by a minister called to this and given the keys of the kingdom, that you're actually connected to Jesus, the Christ of God. And you're therefore to reckon yourselves dead to sin because you've died with Christ and alive in Christ Jesus and living that way because you're buried with him in baptism and raised with him in the same. That's one of the labors that Paul gets through. But then he goes through also the struggles of the fallen of the flesh. Even in the human even in the Christian side of things and, and, and not doing what we want and knowing what the Lord requires, but not doing it and knowing what the Lord tells us not to do, but doing that instead and, and this this struggle that we have as as Christians. Hope you remember that. I hope you remember reading chapter seven and, and all the things we struggled with there, and how Paul finally says, I'm a wretch, and who's gonna save me? Well, praise be to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. I'm buried with him, right? He's, he's the one. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is in that great, glorious chapter, chapter 8, that we spend so much time going through with the glories of Christ and of creation, and he brings it all then in these last chapters that we've just read into, well, what, what about God's chosen people? And how about this, all these Gentiles coming into this thing? And what do we make of this? And he says, there's, God's revealed this. There's this great plan of redemption of Israel, of the nations, and finally of, of, of all that God put all under sin, that He may have mercy on all. So there's this grand scope of redemption that Paul brings us to. And as he talks about those things, Christian, He does what you should do, and He does what I should do, which is drop into praise and doxology, just to worship the Lord. Just to worship the Lord. Didn't Jesus say that in John chapter 17? We just heard that this, this, this everlasting life, this salvation that He has, is that we should Know God and the one he sent. That is eternal life, to know God. And so, as we know God, we should be enamored of him. We should be amazed by him. We should be, often enough, on our knees with weeping and tears because of the amazing God that we serve and his amazing grace to us in Christ Jesus. These are all the things that are right in front of us as we look at Jesus Christ, who is the manifestation of God's glory, though in his earthly life, he's just a man. He's just a, a Jewish guy over there in the Jewish world that no one seemed to care too much about. Or if they did care about it, they wanted to like crush it. And nothing in Jesus that we should esteem him. He's not a great leader of men. He's not the Napoleon or the Caesar or whatever like that. Rather, he came and gave himself up to death. That's the leadership of Jesus. That's the manifestation of the glory of God. The eternal, unchanging glory in this man who is hung like a curse. A naked curse before the people. The only time we see King Jesus with a crown on is on the cross. He's our King. He's the King of Kings. The Lord of Lords. The Ruler of the Kings of Earth. But the only time men saw Him with a crown on was the crown of thorns. Think about that. The manifestation of the glory of God really is almost this highly shameful act. The death of a man... That's the great stumbling block. How could, if, if Jesus is God, how could he die? How could he die a cursed death? That makes no sense. And then come back from the dead? These are all crazy things. That was the Christian message. That's what Christians preach from the beginning. The death and resurrection of the God-man, God and man, Jesus, the Christ of God. The manifestation of divine glory, and the living means by which the chosen of God are drawn into that eternal glory. Now look at that last verse. For from him, and through him, and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. We should say nice and concise. Uh, and even the language itself, as you kind of look at the language, is very simple. But some of the more most profound words to handle in all creation—these words right here. Last week we looked a little bit at it, and I wanted to just remind you. We talked about this from him and through him, and to him, having to do, at least uh, with our context of creation, with origins. That everything that is comes from God. We come from God. Creation is made by God. Uh, There wasn't stuff. (coughs) And then there was, and God's the one that made that happen. Okay, That's like the Christian doctrine of creation put real easy for you. There wasn't stuff. wasn't any eternal God, unchanging, But then God made something. God created. God spoke and he brought worlds into being. So from him are all things. And of course Christ is the agent. The Son is the agent of that creation. Through him are all things. All things in Christ hold together. Our lives are all through God. God gives us life and breath and everything we need. That's all from God. So our lives are wrapped up in God. Our origins are from God. Our lives are wrapped up in God. In Christ all things hold together. But they're also to God, moving that direction. We kind of talked about eschatology or, or the end, right? The God's made at least this history to have a particular beginning and move to an end, and that end, it seems like it's a beginning and it's something even greater. But that seems to be the shape of it. So from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. And that's kind of thinking in this historical reality, and I've mentioned in the last one that Christ is, is the judge. Right. All, you know, if we think of part of the end, part of the telos, or the purpose of creation is that God should judge. He should show himself a righteous judge, rewarding the righteous and punishing the wicked. And Jesus is the one who meets all that out. And he rewards the righteous in his own righteousness, by which they are covered. And he judges the wicked because he is the son of man and God has put all judgment into his hands. But that's kind of a creational book. As if that weren't enough. Okay. As if that weren't big enough to get your head around or try to get your arms around and understand, okay, all things come from God and consist in God and move to Him, to His purposes, to His glory. I want you to take that and shrink it down into a little thing, maybe just like a little Lego. You know the smallest Lego is just the one deal? It's just got like one post. That's it. Set it right there. And that's, that's what we just talked about. What I want to move into is everything else behind it. The eternal realities behind these simple words. For of him and through him and to him are all things. We think of the great work of history. God creating everything and sustaining it and, and keeping it until the end. All that is finite. But by that I mean all, all that's not infinite. God has no final definition. He is who he is, of course. He is consistent with himself. But we can't draw a line around him and say, circumscribe him. There is God. He fits in there. God doesn't fit in anything like that. History does. You do. Our lives do. But God is the God of all eternity. So whatever has happened in time, that little Lego we're going to set right there on the edge of the pulpit, if I had thought of that before I would have brought one, God is, exists all and entirely apart from all that. From all eternity past. Everything that occurs in history... Everything that occurs in your life. Every detail that occurs in the life of your family. All the chaos and struggle and madness that occurs in the political realm, say, in Washington and wherever else in the world and centers of power. Every detail of all of that has been planned by God from all eternity. Every detail of this little Lego, which, by the way, the Lego is enough to blow your mind all by itself, But we back up from that and say all of this, in detail, is planned by God from eternity past, if you want to talk that way. This this creation and the work that he's doing as far as forming the worlds and bringing us into existence and sending his Son in to redeem us and all this, is all in time. It's all finite. But God, from eternity past, as it were, had planned it all out in excruciating and particular detail. That is to say, kind of like micromanaging all the little details. It's it's a bad thing when when I think we try to micromanage ourselves or people try to. You get that at the work sometimes where a boss will give you a job, say, just do it how you want, and then come back around and say, yeah, but do it this way, and yeah, but do it this way, and kind of lean over your shoulder and kind of you know bump you along as far as how they want you to do it. So that's irritating when a boss does that. Sometimes they need to do it. Uh, It's irritating when people do it. But God has micromanaged, we'll say, every single detail of every single reality, of every single molecule that ever existed. Of Him are all things. God's planted all this from eternity. And we might stand there and scratch our head and marvel and say, well, how does that work? How is it so? And I don't know that we need to come up with an answer. I think asking the question is the right thing to do. So how, is it, how is it God can be God and yet make us and, and work with us and continue with us and strive with us? Because he's God. But we have to imagine, have to remember, have to keep in our minds that God has all these things. Not just in his hands like he's going to make lemonade and lemons. He's going to figure this thing out and he's going to make his stuff happen even though, man, it's hard for him or he gets it done. Or It's, it's none of that. We talk that way about God, and I think in certain ways the Bible does. But it also reveals to us that all things are decreed by Him. Every detail of everything He has planned out and purposed in advance. Some people bristle under that. Too bad. Too bad. I say, read, read Romans or read Ephesians chapter one. See how even the very predestination and the, the, the when God said, these things are going to happen, I'm going to get you here, are all based upon the fact that he rules over all things, all details, according to his will. So we think about the origin of our, our existence and the existence of the world and so on. And that's all part of this. This is all God's eternal plan because of him are all things. Eternity past is God's. That's where he exists, that's how he exists, in ways that we don't know, we can't understand, but we know that he's revealed to us, that he does exist that way, and that all things are planned out ahead of time. In his amazing, amazing, amazing intellect, God's mind, how God thinks and plans and does stuff, he reveals to us a little bit in the scriptures, and helps us understand as we work our way along, as we struggle our way along in this life, it's not just that he's in control. You hear, that, you hear that from nearly every Christian, which is good. I'm not disparaging that. That's good. We should say God's in control, and we should give harums and hubba-hubbas when people say it. But we need to understand it in a much more fulsome way than, well, this is kind of weird for me, but God knows what he's doing. So he does. But he's known what he's doing from all eternity. God has never not known what's going on. Even at the very moments when we don't know what's going on, and we're scared and we're tried, God's known it from all eternity. In this cool and collected and real way, then He comes and meets us in the fray as well. He comes and meets us particularly through the incarnation, the Lord Jesus Christ. So our times, the Lego, are in His hand. They're all His. It's all planned, it's all planned down to the very detail. And then he creates and he works with us here. And he sends his son into this crazy mess in order to redeem it. To show his own power and glory manifest for the elect that they should believe and receive forgiveness of sins and eternal life in Christ Jesus. But the glory of God also manifests in the destruction of his enemies. And that's through the Bible and through the Bible and through the Bible. It's not just the salvation of God's people and the joy of that and that is joyful and that is awesome but I, I challenge you Christian for the joy also and I think we'll understand this much more readily in eternity the joy of God's justice upon sinners that the justice of the Lord meted out is a glorious thing and we'll find that as well in the Lord Jesus Christ who meets out justice in the future so God has all this he has the origins he's got our daily lives and he's got an eternity future. Christian. I don't know what you think of heaven. You think of, you know, probably of all sorts of strange ideas. Mostly from cartoons as kids, I think. We get strange ideas from heaven, about heaven. Uh, heaven is where God exists. It's his realm. It's his place. It's his, where he, he rules. And he's created this earth, the heavens and the earth, of the creation. And the point, one of the points of the incarnation is to fuse them. To bring them together that the the reign and dominion of God, the the throne of God, should be on earth among men. That he should rule in the midst of his people. So I want you to think forward a little bit. Not just about eternity past and God decreeing everything that comes to pass in time, the Lego. But also the destination of that Lego. God alone is eternal. God alone has no beginning. exists of himself from all eternity. But he's made each one of us to live forever. Every person, the drunk that's down in the doorway, that's in his own vomit, that guy, the CEO driving his Bentley, living in a $25 million home, that guy too, and everyone in between and sideways and whichever direction you go. God's made us in his image and he's made us for eternity. We don't exist eternally in the sense that the God does. But he's made us to exist everlastingly. And manifests his glory in the redemption of his people through Jesus Christ. And the judgment of his people. So I want you to consider that future. Where is God taking us? What amazing glories does he have for us? Not just in our daily lives and in the, in the years in the future. Sure, those two. I mean, the legal counts. But it keeps going. And going. And getting better. And getting better. We never come to the end of coming to know God. That is eternal life. That we should know God and His Son whom He has sent. So I, I want to take the, the, basically what we talked about last week, shrink it down and step back and say, God is the God of all of that of Him, and through Him, and to Him, are all things. Everything is of God and from God. I'll read a couple of different verses, and they kind of say similar things, and maybe you can get in your mind and think about them as well. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, and verse 6 says, Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom we exist. One, one God, by which we exist and for whom we exist, and there's one Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Ephesians chapter 4. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called, in one hope that belongs to your call. This is the unity of Christianity. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, and through all, and in all. So you can see the expansive nature. This, it's all about God. It's, it's not just like there's a God period, like that, you know, we have one day a week we worship the Lord, and then there are six we don't. It's kind of like that. That's not how it goes. As one week, we have one day in the week we have to worship the Lord, the Lord's day, but we serve Him and worship Him with all of our lives. All days. It's the same thing as the tithe principle. You give the tithe of the 10% to indicate the holiness of everything. It's all in the God. It's all His. And we see this revealed over and over again in Scripture that of Him and, and, and through Him and to Him are all things. Foot back to Isaiah 46. Starting at verse 8. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old. For, this is the point, God declaring himself here and showing himself. For I am God, and there is no other. Now, we just saying Psalm 93, I think, in, uh, right before the, the reading of the word, and where it talks about the other gods and, and so on. And, we, of course, we understand idolatry. There are idols. People make up gods and serve them. But there are real spiritual forces as well that people latch onto to and, and form. But God says, there isn't another one like me, though. There are spiritual forces you can grab onto. There's stuff out there in power you can tap into. Don't do it. Come, through, come to me through my son. There's no one like me. I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Verse 10. Declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times. Things not yet done. So, God says, I'm like this. There's no one like me. I can stand at the beginning and tell the end. I know the end. From the beginning. Now, how does God know the end from the beginning? Because he's a little taller than everybody. and kind of see over there and say, oh, that's what's going on down there. I see. It's because he has decreed it. It's all his plan. It's God who has planned all these things. He knows the end from the beginning because he's decreed the end from the beginning. Not because he's a great perceiver and perceives things well. Though, that be said, he is a great perceiver. The greatest. He perceives all. But he knows all. And he's decreed it. He knows the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things not yet done. We peer into the past, into those ancient times. I love to look into ancient times, partially because they're misty. It's weird to see things just emerge out of the mists of the past, and we don't really know how it came about. Take Stonehenge, or something like that. It's as simple as some rocks. Right? We don't really know how the, those rocks got there. Right? We don't, there's a lot of things in the past that are interesting and murky. The future is even murkier than that. We know very little about it. We know just what God has decreed. But that's what he's saying here. From ancient times, I'll tell you the very future times. Because God knows it all. For of him, and through him, and to him are all things. God revealed, God has revealed himself as absolute. God over all. And I mentioned that just kind of a quick, it wasn't supposed to be like a dig at the Mormons last week, or Latter-day Saints, but I'll do it again. It's not a dig, it's the truth. They're polytheists. Just like any Hindu, they're polytheists. They believe in many gods, not just one god. Okay, the Bible doesn't teach that. It teaches there are many gods and many lords, and some of them are spiritual powers. Others are made up, and all that kind of stuff. God is God over all of it. If we're going to break it all down to something, it's not the little Lego we're talking about. It's not small enough to compare the infinite absoluteness of Almighty God, who is Almighty God, and there is none. Other. God has revealed himself as absolute God over all. God over time, God over space, God over eternity. He is God over all. And Jesus, is, he's made himself manifest. He's shown himself in this man, the Son of God, for us and for our salvation. And all that for his glory. All that for his glory, which moves us into the second part here. God exalting doxology. This will help you if you go to John chapter 17 again here. I think sometimes we hear the word glory. We might think of brightness, you know, like an overwhelming uh, heat or brightness or some kind of traumatic experience. I think R.C. Sproul had coined the phrase the trauma of holiness, uh, which is, say, coming into contact with the holiness of God and having it be overwhelming in an amazingly scary way. Right? God, God himself in his glory and his holiness is a, is, is a holy God and is scary. The weight, though, I think is the important aspect of this word glory. It uh, means something heavy. I think Dennis Turry was talking about that as far as uh, the word glory and, and giving weight or intention to, to people as you talk to them or to the word of God as it's preached and so on. Glory means weight or sometimes we would say gravitas. You'll hear that sometimes the kind of the seriousness or heaviness by which we understand somebody, or importance, the glory of God, His weightiness, His gravitas, His importance. What's weightier than God? What has more seriousness and weight and glory than the true and the living God? This is Jesus reveals and taps into here right at the beginning of his prayer. Let's read these first words in chapter 17. He says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. We'll stop there for just for a moment, take a quick side step on that third verse. I just ran into a friend of mine who posted something saying, Limited atonement. a doctrine seeking a scriptural basis (laughs) I thought you know that's silly Um, because there's one right there John 17 is full of them actually John's full of them Uh, and it's it's a a, you know this thinking of the intent the divine intent in the atonement can be challenging because I think there are different dimensions of the atonement that we need to think about in the Bible we can't read them all as just pulled into one like I think Calvinists might tend to do because of our five points I think okay. Well, the atonement is God's elect from all eternity. He's chosen them, and uh, He's created, and they're fallen, so they're helpless. Uh, so He needs, we need God to work in us, so we have you know election, total depravity, irresistible grace. But then He sent His Son to redeem whom? The whole world. Yeah, Bible says that. The elect. Yeah, the Bible says that his sheep, his people, right here, the ones whom the Father had given him, which might mean in this, you know, the band of apostles immediately, but he spreads it right out from there all the way down to the end, just like that, which we get to in a, in a moment. But and all this is glorifying God that Christ should be glorified and His Father should be glorified. Getting getting back to the glory issue, eternal glory is manifested through the redemption that's in the Son. So the Son's here to glorify the Father, and the Father to glorify the Son, and the Son has authority over all flesh to give eternal life to whomever God has given him. And this, verse three, is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. This is another one as far as not just the Mormons, it apply here too, but also the Jehovah's Witness, JW's, uh, where if we don't know the Son of God, we don't know the Father who sent Him. Okay? That's, we, don't, we don't get the Father without having the Son. The way we get to have the Father is by having the Son. Right? That's why God sent His Son. That's why I say He's the Man, He is the manifestation of the glory of God in the midst of men, in the midst of creation, that we may know the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom He has sent. Does that mean we believe in two gods? Okay, so right right now just just to that question, wow, we're in the in the thick, neck deep in the theology of the early church. trying to figure out well, what, what's been revealed here? What, what has God done? Because we know there's only one true living God. Yeah, we know that God exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. How does that work? Are we absurd? Do we say three equals one? Because that would be an absurdity, wouldn't it? Because three doesn't equal one and can't. But we're not saying God is three and one the same way in the same relationship. Saying God is three as the person, please have words and start distinguishing and making sense, or at least we're not being absurd as we talk about the Trinity, but also as we talk about the incarnation. What is this man, Jesus? You know, it's not like he was just a phantasm that like flew through the air and said, oh, there's like a ghostly figure that didn't take on flesh. Sure, that's God, no problem. Maybe that's a problem, but it would be less of a lesser problem than saying, no, there is a person, a man who took flesh, really a man, fully man and fully God in one person forever. Well, now you've got yourself a mystery. The second great mystery of Christianity, the first is the Trinity, the second is the Incarnation, and they form the basis, I think, of and with, with the Scripture in hand, trying to understand those things, the ministry of the early church to us down the centuries. But Jesus here has manifested that the Father may be glorified, that the weightiness and the, the strength and the gravitas of the Father may be manifest through this man who is going to give himself up to death. Verse 5 here, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Can any of you imagine saying something like that? Of yourself? I mean, I don't know what I was doing, I don't think much, before the world existed. I certainly wasn't sharing God's eternal glory with Him. This is one of these things that, you know, does the Bible say Jesus is God? Over and over and over and over again, if you know how to read it. Right? If you can understand, and it's not that hard to understand, uh, but we're looking for oftentimes simple, direct statements. And those are theological statements that we like to make that are punchy and clear. Jesus doesn't say it like that, but here he just says it. He shared the glory of the Father before the world began. That means he's God. Flip over to verse, kind of down the end of the chapter there, verse 24. He says here toward the end of his prayer, Father, I desire that they also, these disciples, these ones, he's manifested the glory to, give eternal life to, they should know God and know him, and so on. Uh, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory That you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. As I said, I I feel inadequate to even handle something like this. But Jesus says, I I want them with me. I want them, you Christian, us, to see Jesus in the glory. The weight of glory that he shared with the Father before anything was. The eternal glory of the triune. God, Jesus says, I want them to see me. The church has always talked about a theology of vision versus the theology of faith or or the doctrine of vision versus the doctrine of of, of the way. Christians, we're on the way. We're on the path. We don't see yet. And we get glimpses, spiritual glimpses of the glory of Christ. Hopefully you're getting one this morning of the glory of Christ. But he says, no, I want them to see me in my glory that I had with you, Father, before anything ever was. That's where we're going. To join in with this glory of God, this Trinitarian glory of the one undivided God whom the Father sent His Son to redeem us, to not only manifest this glory that the Father should be glorified and that He be glorified, but that we be drawn into it as well. That's the side of glory over here. It's from Him, Through Him and to Him in all eternity with all glory undiminished. And it's eternal life that we should know that God and the one whom He has sent. And all was for His glory. (laughs) To Him be the glory. It's all His. What's already all His. Nothing's, Nothing's changed. As it was in the beginning, is now and ever shall be world without end. Amen and amen. The glory of God undiminished, manifested to the world, manifested to the heavens above, the angels, the demons, any living thing. The manifestation of the glory of God in Christ Jesus. But only to those who believe do we get drawn into that and become partakers of that as sons of God and daughters of God through Christ Jesus. That's the weight of glory. But maybe that weight takes this weight off of you. It's not all about you. Your life isn't about you. Does that take the weight off? I think it should. The pressure's off because God's got His own glory covered. He is the protagonist. He is the main player. God's the one who matters. And He sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to have preeminence. So you know what that means, Christian? Your life, your efforts, your intellect, your labors, your work, your money, everything you are, isn't about you. You're not number one. And neither am I. Jesus Christ is number one. To Him be the glory. Forever. Not to you. Not to me. It takes it off our shoulders. It's not about us. It's not about achieving your dreams or Manifesting your inner whatever is going on now, as far as the you know, purposes of life. It's about glorifying your Heavenly Father, who loves you so much from all eternity, He loves you, that He sent His Son, Jesus Christ, eternal God, sharing the glory with His Father before all worlds, to come into this world for wicked sinners. What a God we serve! To Him be the glory. It's not about us. We're wretches. It's about the glory of God and redeeming the people. So His Son has a wife and a bride in all eternity, and however that works. Praise His name. Because we don't deserve a bit of it. Not a bit of it. To Him be the glory. Now and forever. And amen. That's the Christian life. We're, We're smoke going up to the glory of God. We're incense being burned. We're sheep to the slaughter. Or, maybe we get to live in opulence and enjoy various things. All of it is to the glory of God. It's all about Him, not about us. So the pressure's off. The weight's off your shoulders. It's about the glory of God. You can aim that direction. In that sense, you'll find no disappointments whatever. Because if it's about your glory, I think you'll find many disappointments. But if it's about lifting up Christ Jesus, building the kingdom of God, receiving that kingdom, the pressure's off. But God does call us to service. As we share in His glory, we grow in that. We grow in our service to the Lord. So to God alone be the glory takes the weight off of us. We don't have to store up our own glory. We don't have to act like we're the man or it's all about number one. It's not. We humble ourselves before the mighty hand of God, and He lifts us up. So what's the mission of Jesus then? Here's the thing for From Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To His name be the glory forever and ever. What's the mission of Jesus? To manifest that glory and to draw the elect into it. To manifest the glory of God to all creation, to humanity, to the church, to you, and to draw us by faith into that eternal, unchanging, absolute glory. That is ours in Christ Jesus. Jesus reveals the sovereign God over time. The origins of our existence. this little Lego. It's all gods. Jesus reveals he's the sovereign over time. He's the sovereign over all eternity. Is well behind it. This God is the, the sovereign one of glory. All glory is his. All importance and weightiness and gravitas is all gods. Not ours. But he calls us into it through Christ Jesus. And finally, this the very eternal, unthinkable, unquenchable love of eternal of Almighty God is manifest to us, to the world, to the church, to us in Christ Jesus. That's where the love of God is. It's been made manifest for us in Him. Oh, take it. Take Jesus. Love Him. Know that you're glorified in Him. It's not about you. It's about Jesus Christ, His dominion, His glory, manifesting the glory of Almighty, eternal God for all creation to see and for us to pull into. May we do it. Amen.